Hey, Eugene. How's it going? Did you press record? Yes, I pressed record. You know what happened to me just now is that I had my cable plugged into two, but I had the number one channel. Oh, yeah, uh, I've done that before. That's why I had to have you clap again. I have done that before. Hey, man, the intro for the last episode is really funny, so I forgive you for the blunder. I was, you know what, after that happened, and if people don't know what happened and they haven't listened to the previous one they I basically forgot to hit record and what's even funnier is that we had a backup but the backup didn't work also so because of had, Eugene by the way also it was Eugene's side of the backup that didn't work somehow yeah we had to rely on the third backup which wasn't even meant to be a backup it was just a built-in feature we had the way we do uh, this Zoom. video call yeah we just got really lucky though I suppose we could have always re-recorded but that sounds really depressing. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Tan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. I want to start today. Okay. Because I noticed that, well, first of all, you're nervous, which is slightly funny to me. So now we, you get to be nervous for longer because we're going to do my subject first. It's not really nervous. It's more along the lines of being careful in how I present this and understanding. And I hope people that listen understand the positioning I'm coming from and why why I have a, a little bit of apprehension, not necessarily apprehension, but just like okay, save uh, it. a little bit save of carefulness. Because we're not doing your subject first. We're doing mine because I noticed we always give the first subject more time. Okay, yeah. Fair so enough. in the interest Let's of being fair to our own subjects, not that I feel slighted in any way, but like for the sake of the topic, we should alternate. Let's do it. Okay, so my subject this week is EA thinks gaming subscriptions will lead to weirder, more creative games. EA is the video game publisher, Electronic Arts, known for FIFA. I said that for Eugene, but I think he knows that. And this but it's funny because <laughs> FIFA is not a good game. Okay, well, known for they're known for a lot of other games, like the big blockbuster sports games that come out every year. EA Sports. It's in the game. And are updated according to, you know, each season's players. Anyway, that's EA. What this news comes from is E3, which is the Electronic Entertainment Expo that happens every year. This was last week in California and consists of hardware, software, and publishers from the video game industry presenting new products. This is kind of like a preview of the upcoming year. And companies also hold their press conferences leading up to it. Which is pretty interesting. So, like, the entire week is meant to be, like, it could be compelling to anyone that's part of the video game industry, whether you're an investor or a creator or a consumer. The subject I'm picking in particular is about subscription services. So, this has been a big item of news in the video game industry over the last year, 
a lot of people are diving into a lot of the developers and publishers are diving into it like the xbox game pass ubisoft uplay pass google stadia microsoft game pass ultimate these names are not super creative but they tell you what they are and pretty much everyone thinks that subscription services in some way are going to be part of the future of gaming industry and to just give you an idea most of them seem to be going for 15 usd a month which is a big which is a pretty big chunk of change, I would say, to be paying every really? month. You don't think $15 a month is a chunk of change? It is, but I think relative to what you're getting, it feels, I feel, I think just when I think about it now, if an average game itself costs, let's say $50. This is true. Like, I think that if you multiply that out, then it kind of makes sense. You know, you're right compared to what it costs you to buy like a TV series or a movie, then it makes sense because the a game is already a more expensive item. So it makes sense that the subscription is more expensive. I think it's expensive as far as subscriptions go. I do not think we should devalue video games. That's not like the point of this conversation. Um, so... This article in particular is about EA, is about Electronic Arts as a publisher in particular, going into subscription services. Oh, also this article is from The Verge. So The Verge spoke to Mike Blank, who is EA's Senior Vice President of Player Networks, and he says that he thinks subscription services is a space that's ripe for innovation and experimentation. He also said, you know, people are playing more games than ever before because those games are there to try and they're there for free. The reason he said this is because EA actually has a bit of a advantage in terms of having data about their players and what their players are doing because they launched their subscription service, Origin Access Premiere, last summer. So they've got like one year on the other people in terms of observing what their players and consumers are doing but other like i said other publisher companies agree xbox executive phil spencer says that ultimately he doesn't think there's going to be you know a hundred subscription services out there it's going to be a small group of folks which makes sense anyway because honestly like in terms of big game developers there's really only a handful as well so what i'm interested in is this idea of whether subscriptions will make a company innovate because that's like the position that this article and also that Blink is saying about EA, right? That by doing a subscription service, that means that they have more liberty and freedom to do quote unquote weirder, more creative games. And it's possible, actually, by the way, I che- well, is it cheating? I asked Stanley what he thought. Stanley plays more video games than me. And Stanley said he thinks this makes sense for EA in particular because they make all of their money from annual franchises, such as FIFA, mm-hmm. right? Games that are the same every year, and they're, you, no one is going to say they're like creative or artistic or like particularly innovative, right? They're just, but people still love them for alternative reasons. So them securing the money from those games in advance gives EA in particular this constant inflow of cash that could be used for like third-party developers and those smaller games that otherwise they don't have incentive to make. I think the argument is sound if you just think about EA. Like the way EA is set up, what their products is, then a subscription service 
could potentially lead to them making more interesting, weirder games. But on a landscape at a whole, I don't really think that that's likely. And the reason that is, is because of the way subscriptions work. When you have subscribers, then suddenly you have to take care of the subscribers you have. And you're very concerned about like the subscriber number going up or down. And so when you're trying to retain subscribers, I just feel that that doesn't motivate you to take risks. So for the gaming industry landscape as a whole, I'm not sure that like loads of subscription services encourages making innovative games. That's where I'm at. Okay. So when I was thinking about this, like everything you mentioned felt like it was in line with basically what Netflix does. And I was trying to use the adjacency of Netflix to see if there were things that you could potentially pull from as clues as to whether or not we feel the space that Netflix has carved out has resulted in innovation. What do you think? Has it? But I do think the one big difference is that unless EA Sports changes their model in a way where they're not the ones developing all the games, Mm -hmm. but basically coming in, pulling in outside sort of uh, developers and and game studios, like smaller ones, I think that's where the innovation happens. That's where you can start like really experimenting. But if everything's left to the devices of EA Sports to innovate, I don't know how innovative you can actually be. Yeah, so so EA Sports is just one branch of EA, right? But it's the biggest branch. It's the branch that we all know. And actually to bulk up your metaphor with Netflix, EA has a branch called EA Originals which is, you know, just like Netflix originals. And it's not, it's had a couple of games that were quite good, that were like critically well praised, which is weird, right, for EA. And that is the situation that could ideally happen that you've just described, is that they take Mm -hmm. the money they get from EA Sports and they channel it into things like originals that are done with third-party developers. And that creates interest. I just wonder if they have enough, if they're going to have enough incentive to do it. I I guess right now, like with the conference, like with these quotes, like they're expressing that they want to move in that direction. But whether they continue to have that incentive to move is going to be interesting. Because I also just think like there's not really an overlap between the I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm probably just generalizing. I was going to say, I'm not sure about how big the overlap is between the EA sports player and the person who's going to be interested in the EA indie game. But wouldn't you say that if they have that subscription, then it allows for more experimentation? So like, for example, if I previously wasn't willing to spend, you know, 15 bucks, 20 bucks, 50 bucks on this game that was outside of my wheelhouse, but it was soon lumped in, then my access to a new experiences changes. So then suddenly you're opening the doors to new potential verticals. Yeah, that's EA's rationale. Like they've said, you know, subscribers will try out old games that, you know, they weren't interested in just because they're available, just because they're provided in the same way that this, this the game that they are interested in is provided. And 
I don't know. I'm just not that convinced about that, but it's probably my judgment is clouded because of like my own habits where I don't do that with Netflix really. So I don't, I don't know if just because they're available on the same service means that people will seek them out. If I can kind of use my own anecdotal evidence, Netflix sometimes has really weird, quirky shows that you otherwise probably wouldn't have watched unless it was on Netflix. I think Terrace House is a good example. <laughs> I mean, the, the model itself is a derivative. I don't know if people watch Terrace House, but Terrace House is kind of like... I don't know if I would describe Terrace House as weird and quirky. It's like Big Brother. I think it's weird and quirky from a cultural perspective, right? Okay. And I think it's like, okay. Weird and quirky you know from I mean? a cultural perspective, sure. Okay. If, if you are I don't, North I don't American call centric. It, I think that I don't want to call it weird and quirky. That's probably the wrong way of putting it. But it's just like a look into a different culture. How about especially this? Let's just say of, Terrace House is not something that you would have sought out for yourself. Yes. It kind of had to be pushed into my periphery, right? So that's a good example of, I think, your ability to experiment and try new things out if the cost is marginal and that's kind of what this the subscription does right yeah yeah that's true because you've already like let's say you um let's say you buy fifa and 2k every year then it makes sense financially i think because then you'll be like oh and then i'll just play whatever other random stuff i find when i'm tired of 2k and fifa i just have to trust that ea has the data that's saying like enough players are doing that like they have enough interest and so are doing this. So I guess that's encouraging. I guess I should feel encouraged by that data that people are yeah. subscribing for a commercial blockbuster and then on their free time playing the indie game. I wanted to actually ask a, a bigger question that wasn't just about EA and video games and it's about subscriptions. I've been feeling a bit of subscription fatigue lately has that yep. happened to you? Mm, it's funny because I actually subscribed to something or I supported something yesterday. Oh, like a like a monthly commitment. Yeah. And I just wonder what are subscriptions doing to our relationship to products and services? I think ultimately it actually increases our relationship intensity. But like with one specific company or one specific person. Yes, correct. Is that a good thing? It's a good thing if you're deriving value from it, right? Because it allows them to continue onwards. But what if... I guess what I'm thinking is like... A subscription... Yeah, I agree. Subscriptions increase intensity. So if you subscribe to EA, then you have like this even more intense relationship with EA as a developer and you're more invested, right? It's like a it's like getting married because now you've like got this ongoing thing. And then I think psychologically what that does to you is that you feel like you really have to like spend time with EA, like you need to play more of their games, you need to care about how they're doing, which on one hand could be good if you already care about EA, but what does that do to the gaming industry? on a larger level. Doesn't that mean like, because you focus so much on EA that you no longer think about Xbox and Ubisoft and all of the other games on offer by other subscription services? Potentially. I just, I guess what I'm getting at is I feel like on an industry level that that is not a good thing. 
And I feel that way about other subscription services as well. Yeah, totally. Because I think you definitely want to have a variety, right? And for this to present itself as variety, it really needs to come down to either they need to grow and by virtue of growing, they need to maybe just suck up the whole industry as we know it, right? Like they need to go and like acquire everyone else one way of looking at it or we just come to the realization that the bifurcation is happening where if you want to play that game that's free, you're just going to have an ad every three turns, right? I, I just think the single purchase model... I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I feel the other way, but I feel like the single purchase model gives you more freedom as a consumer because then you're not locked in. You don't feel like you're invested and locked into a single company. So then you as a consumer could ideally take risks across company borders. Mm -hmm. So I don't just have to take a risk on the EA indie game, but I can take a risk on the Microsoft Game Pass indie game or whatever other developer or i can make a totally alternative purchase entirely that's not linked to a big developer but once i'm paying 15 usd a month which like you know could in the long run be economically worth it i'm not interested in spending additional money outside of that subscription service Mm -hmm. on other products and that's like kind of the on a wider level, something that I've been thinking when it comes to my other subscriptions, like Netflix and Apple Music and Adobe even. But I, I, I don't not see all the incentives of doing subscriptions. Like I still see the pros from like consumer and company end. And you're right, like as a consumer, it's good to be personally invested in the person or thing that you care about. But I think it does mean you're less likely to move away from it. And that could be an issue. Mm. Agree? Disagree? I'm just trying to think to myself if we, if we, if we were to continue on the current path without subscriptions, do we feel like the industry itself was better off like that? Because if it wasn't better off, then I think that it's too early to necessarily model out whether subscriptions will fundamentally, for the worse, change the the whole industry. So I, I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, well, the the ability for us to... Because I, I, actually, there's one thing you mentioned previously that I wanted to push back on. You were like, well, I feel compelled to spend more time on it. I feel, I feel compelled to... Yeah. check up on them but in my experience it i don't think time and subscription are two things that necessarily come to a point and what i mean by that is you could spend you know whatever let's say you only have five hours in a week to play something but for those five hours you derive the most pleasure mm-hmm. and i think that itself is probably maybe a reimagination of how we need to treat media Mm. where we treat it for what it gives back to us based on our time with it versus we need to be on it to get the most value out of it. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Because with with Netflix, like there are times when I was thinking to myself, like I should just cancel it. Like we don't really watch it that That's often. That's how but, I feel. But at the same time, it's like the value that it 
brings i'm there are times I'm like oh this is pretty cool like this is something i otherwise wouldn't have been able to see and that to me is enough for me to continue being a subscriber like new documentaries or whatever like it just takes that one really good documentary maybe once every less than four weeks for you to justify its value yeah i guess maybe my i i hear you but i feel like my way of valuing what i'm getting from a product is still more old school and i can't shift the part of my brain that's like calculating how much time i spend using a service in order to yeah. deduce value. And I like recognize that you're saying that yeah. we need to move towards something that's not time-based, but my brain doesn't work like that still. Like when I'm thinking about Netflix, I think about, and I share my Netflix account, right? Across several people. And I think about, okay, the total hours that these people spend watching Netflix makes the subscription worth it. And I'm not thinking, no. okay, the value that we all get from watching like 30 minutes a week is like good for the money that we're spending. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this last week, didn't we? About time or the week before. Just valuing your time, right? And there's certain oh, things that you do that are invaluable. Creative capital. Yeah, and I think that's the one thing that I'm starting to wrap my head around too is I I don't want everything to be so formulaic in a way. Like I, I almost appreciate that some things cannot be bought. Mm, but it just makes it so much more difficult. I, okay, like creative capital, but then, that is equation is more important. But, like, but is it difficult or I was just going to say, or but just let your emotions dictate on something so like sort of found like, it's, it's not like life or death. It's not necessarily the state of your business. It's really how you're spending your leisure time. But this I is think, one way of looking at it. Okay, but I think it is important. And I think actually the reason I've been feeling subscription fatigue is because I'm not earning as much money right now. So I don't have as much income to be playing around with. And yes, subscriptions each individually are costing me like five to seven USD. Actually, Adobe is the most expensive. It's 13 USD, right? But I've been having like mm -hmm. a good hard look at my subscription services, which maybe, maybe doesn't seem like a lot of money, but it's like a reoccurring bill every month. And so I think about like, how can I like trim the fat on this bill? that I'm paying for, right? And that's why I have to make a harder, I think I have to make a harder decision based off of like the value that this this subscription is getting me. And so if I think about like emotional value, like it gets much more blurry versus like yeah. the time I spend using this product and the money that I'm paying for that time. Yeah, that, that's no, where that's, I'm that's coming from. No, that's definitely fair. Yeah. Because I'm, I've now sort of like really limited how I spend my money into things that I think I I can derive a lot of emotional value from. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So, yeah. and it's been a lot easier. So that's why I was like so quick to just be like, Hey, you know what? Either you like it or you don't. And if you like it, pay for it. And if you don't, then don't, obviously there's parameters around that. Mm -hmm. Like is it in your budget and whatnot, but it's been a pretty easy way to just make decisions to bring it to a, like a wider audience and not just about like Sharice's personal budgets and also my consumer habits. Um, I, I am really interested in how 
flexible people are with their subscriptions versus single products. Because I think it would be interesting to have people um, also experiment more with moving subscriptions. So let's say you commit to a 15 USD gaming subscription. Like, would you be willing to switch around from EA and Ubisoft and Xbox? Because I think maybe it's, maybe it's more interesting to think about. It's not, am I paying this subscription or not? But what are the different offerings out there? I think it depends on certain things like I'm making this up because I don't I don't really know how it would work in theory but let's say hypothetically if you earned certain things that you had no if you earned certain things while on your subscription you would lose them if you canceled your subscription let's <gasps> say that's terrible right yeah but I mean I terrible for us about, great for companies because I think about it and you if you have multiple studios offering subscriptions and you can't afford to have three subscriptions, like just like how some people have Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, whatever yeah. it may be, right? Yeah. So w- w- what's happening is maybe that becomes the friction point that will determine what happens. Yeah. At the very worst, it really creates a divisive and very difficult environment. Yeah. And if it's not super hardcore, then honestly, people can just operate. And, you know, I think at some point in time, something will lose out. Like if you value gaming more than you value Netflix or Hulu, then one of those will go. Well, which is fine, I think. I don't know if you saw that thing I shared in Slack, but there was a stat that said that of the free time Fortnite gamers have in any given week, 21% of it is spent playing Fortnite. Like one-fifth of their free time. That doesn't sound too bad. That sounds like a lot. If you think about in a day, like, you know, let's say at any given moment in time, you're spending around eight hours to go to school or to work. Let's say total, like, yeah, door-to-door door, 10 that's hours. that's not free time. We're talking about... No, no, about- but I'm, I'm, I'm calculating, like, okay, 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 okay. you know, 10 hours spent to, like, things you need to do as your job in life. Yeah. Whether it's a student at that point or yeah. uh, you're working. 10 hours door to door plus let's say seven hours of sleep that's 17 hours mm-hmm. uh that mean that leaves you with seven hours of free time or so yeah so you're spending like one and a half hours playing Fortnite. yeah and then that's not multiply so bad. That seven that's not so bad seven, come on you're spending s- come dude, you must, on you must over game the, a lot over the course of a week you a must week? you must spend at least that much time like some people definitely spend at least that much time on instagram and social media so, that's a lot yeah i don't know i, I, I still think, think it's a lot i i genuinely think that is fine and not as high of a number as i thought you were gonna say i think overall my conclusion is you know subscriptions good for internal companies right for a company to be innovative within itself but i think it I don't know if it necessarily encourages innovation across an industry because it means that people are more invested into their individual subscriptions. So we'll see. I think it's, as always, like I'm interested in looking at this as well because it's developing, right? So a lot of these subscription services that were announced at E3 haven't come out yet. So we don't really have data on what consumers want to do. Something to look at.
before we get into yours. Do you want to make your massive disclaimer now? Yeah, let's let's do this. All right. So it's a little bit different. It's like not really in the creative realm. So my topic this week is Chelsea women's coach suggested smaller goals and pitches for women. Hope Solo is having none of it. So this is maybe two very specific names. And if you don't follow football or soccer, then you're like, who are these people? Uh, Chelsea is arguably one of the biggest clubs in Europe. There, they play in the EPL in England, and <laughs> you just said two very specific names, and then you used an acronym. Oh, and they play in the English Premier League. Sorry, uh, which is one of the top four leagues in Europe and the world. Hope Solo is a goalkeeper who used to be part of the U.S. Women's National Team setup. She's known for being one of the best goalkeepers of all time, but also very outspoken, and a lot of controversy has kind of followed her drunk driving charges etc i'm not going to go too much into that because i think it's i think you're just explaining because i think it's really funny what is the the vector of people who both know about ea and e3 and also about chelsea and hope solo besides the two of us i don't know but anyways i'm curious have you been watching the women's world cup in france i have not i'm sorry okay i have not i didn't even watch the nba this year i've watched like no sports which is not a good reason i mean you're in the same time zone it's being played in france i know it's it's a shit reason i'm sorry um have you been watching it i've been watching highlights i mean the timing doesn't really work out but as as is the case with a lot of football that you watch in asia but anyways this world cup in this tournament has been filled with controversy and i think that it's also a representation of where fifa the governing body of football is right now yeah it's in flux for multiple reasons there's tons of corruption uh the qatari World Cup or the Qatar World Cup in 2022 is sort of right around the corner. A lot of bribery, a lot of rule changes. Uh, One of the biggest rule changes that have emerged recently is the introduction of VAR, which is basically the ability to do an instant replay on a call to see if it was right or not. Yeah. And that's changed things a lot. But beyond that... uh, Change things a lot, you mean in terms of how the game is played and organized? How the game is, is... officiated i would say which which necessarily affects how the game is played right i think there is a little bit of change in style because certain things now are definitely being scrutinized a lot more heavily because they can look back at it after the fact Mm -hmm. and i mean the sport moves relatively fast so you know if things are happening behind the scenes or something happens so quickly you can't see it then you can always go back and look at it okay so tell me about this particular controversy that you want to discuss Okay, so the the rules behind football or soccer as we know it date back to 1848, where a bunch of people came together. They decided on the Cambridge Rules, which put sort of a some sort of semblance of the rules you see today. I mean, there's been changes along the way, but this was sort of the first organized movement around creating rules. And it's interesting because because this topic is around women's football. Back in 1921, the English Football Association actually flat out banned women's teams from playing. So they had to kind of spring up why? and do their own thing. Uh, do I know why? I don't know. Because actually it was quite popular. They said there were some games where upwards of 50,000 people were watching women play. Then why did they ban it? Yeah. Anyway, I guess we don't have, have no to idea. derail ourselves into football history. Yeah. yeah. So there was an op-ed by the women's coach for Chelsea's team. And she said that they should reconsider some of the elements of women's football or soccer. And some of the things she proposed were the size of the goal and the size of the pitch. 
to kind of contextualize this within the sport itself, like obviously you recognize the physiological differences within women. It's kind of objectively defined. Like you look at whether it's world records, whether it's just things that can be objectively measured in terms of performance, it's all there in terms of being black and white. To also further contextualize this, earlier in the tournament, the U.S. women's national team played against Thailand and they won 13-0, which is a massive blowout. Like especially anything in football soccer. Like Also, the U.S. women's team is better than the Thailand team, right? Like overall, not just goalkeepers. Correct. They're good. But I think that beyond that, this... If you look at the the height of the Thai goalkeeper, she was like five foot five, right? And in the top women's league in the U.S., the average height is five five foot eight. Okay, but okay. the reality is like they're actually covering the same eight foot goal as a six foot three keeper, which is the average height in the Premier League. You mean six foot three so, male goalkeeper in the Premier League? Correct, male goalkeeper. Right. So that's sort so, of some of the arguments that are emerging. It's like a seven-inch height difference covering the same I mean, area. Yeah, exactly. Right? Seven. Yes. Yep, yeah. So I, as I look at it, and this, the reason why I was kind of nervous about this was like, I have an opinion on this, and I'm trying to understand. And my opinion actually is rooted in a combination of just what's best for the sport and what's best for the future of the sport in terms of commercialization and growth. Okay. Should we provide the context that Eugene used to be a football player? Or, well, you still play football for fun. He used to play semi-professionally and he plays as a goalkeeper. So this subject is kind of like almost personal for you. Yes. Okay. To that point, like I was looking at all the different sports out there that also have... Uh, some sort of variation between rules between men and women gymnastics is one of them Uh, some events are only for women and some are only for men Mm -hmm. in women's basketball the size of the ball is one inch smaller but the hoop is the same height in athletics women's hurdles are nine inches shorter than men's hurdles in women's golf the tee box is closer and in women's volleyball the net height is lower Mm -hmm. so it's 2.43 2.43 meters versus 2.24 meters. I know mm-hmm. we're jumping around with all these different sort of yeah uh, um, measurements, but welcome to two international people who use both mm-hmm. inches and metric. I apologize to our listeners. Yeah. So beyond that, like I think certain sports recognize that, and I was thinking about it. The reason why I was trying to be careful or understand is like I I think that for me it's there there's this element of of a lot of women, especially Hope Solo who feel that the by virtue of you changing the game to suit women's physiology it's inherently sexist right yeah and for me i'm thinking to myself but if the objectivity of the height versus what the game entails is clearly defined like what's that what's that argument like how do you how do you lay that out and how do you define the right answer okay i mean I understand where Hope Solo is coming from, and I understand the context of these sort of arguments, because every time you say an argument like the thing for the woman should be changed, it sounds like we need to change it to accommodate the woman in a way that suggests the the, the female isn't good enough, right? Like, that's, what, that's sometimes what, what it comes across, like, oh, the woman can't do what the men can do so we need to set the bar lower for them 
right? And that's what mm-hmm. sometimes these arguments sound like. But I was thinking about this, and I was I was thinking about this in a super broad context. So bring me back if this is too broad. But I was like, what does equality really mean? Does it mean that we all try to fit within the same box? In general, like, does that mean like Eugene and I have to meet like the same standards, or does equality mean meeting someone where they are, right? Like yeah. understanding that you have to tailor things, whatever that is, whether that's a sport or a program or school, etc., for the audience that goes into it. I mean, this is this is a thing too, and like, it's funny because part of this also was about equality equality of opportunity all these things and i don't actually don't feel comfortable getting into because i don't know enough about the nuance behind it but it comes down to you know it's not necessarily saying that women cannot play football by any stretch but i think it's also about creating an opportunity where the product itself is allowed the most room for growth Mm mm-hmm Right. And the reason why, like, and I'll actually maybe in between that, I'll, I'll kind of uh, read off some of Hope Solo's own insights. And she said, historically, the quality of goalkeeping in the women's game hasn't been great. And when you look at the complete picture, this isn't just because of height, but because of the physique, lack of technique, inconsistent coaching, and simply by not having the best athletes in goal. My former teammates fight to play on big fields, and I think they've shown that they have every right to play on the size of field they want. If you think the field is too big and you don't want to listen to players, you might as well make us play futsal. Futsal being a small-sided game. It's like a small-sided game played on a court. Think of it as the equivalent of, like, basketball. Like, a lot of times if you go to, um, let's say, Brazil or whatever, the futsal court and the basketball court might actually be on the same area. Uh And then she ends it off with, I can't apologize for being emotional when I read comments like these because I spent my whole career pouring my blood, sweat, and tears into perfecting my craft. To put a handicap on the women's game cheapens the accomplishments of everyone who has worked so hard for years. Um, But the thing, like, if you look back at the first argument, she says height and physique, right? Which are two physiological elements that you can't really change. Which is hopefully being solved by the change in whether it's the size of the goal or size of the field but for me like my own and this is probably where i have to put on the disclaimer 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 it's an unpopular opinion for the ultimate growth of women's sports i think it's not necessarily bad to differentiate itself as a product to make it more suitable for what it represents and what I mean by that is like, and I was talking about this too, because one of the one of the sports I feel that holds its own and there's less of a men versus women qualitative issue is probably tennis, where people don't, they just like recognize women's tennis is a different game. It's this and that. Yeah. Uh, they almost feel as though when someone that's physically dominating comes in, it's, and this might sound sexist, like it's like when, if Serena Williams comes in and she's just, able to physically dominate games it doesn't go in the spirit of women's tennis i think that's sexist eugene that's sexist right I, but it's yeah. not that's not my uh, opinion okay sure yeah but that's thank not you my for opinion putting that disclaimer out there but but for me like i think there's definite limitations on on women's sports because of the lack of resources dedicated but if there's a way for you to consolidate and make the game uh more exciting better because 
of fundamental rule changes like i don't know why that would be a bad thing because the argument is that if you if, i mean if you disagree and think that the game would be less interesting if it was smaller that's one thing but i actually think that you would improve the quality of the game if you were to change some of the parameters around it yeah well i think it's interesting because i think hope solo is concerned because it sounds like you're diminishing the game overall and if you make changes to women's soccer, of course, you have to be really considerate about the changes you make and be really exact about things like measurements and have a reasoning for it, right? And it's not, obviously, it would be bad to turn women's football into like kitty football. But I think the suggestion by the Chelsea's women's coach is saying, hey, what if you just made the net like four inches shorter? You know, like, what would that do? Like, yeah. And I, I mean, I'm not a football player, but I feel like part of the reason she's suggesting this, or I read her op-ed on it, is because like a lot of goals were made at the edges, right? I don't know what the right term is. Outside the box? Sure. Is that what I'm trying to say? The edges, or you mean the extremities of the goal? The extremities of the goal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so if all of the goals that are successfully scored are like that that that's more boring right it, but that's naturally like how you would play if you know that that's where you could consistently score then you're just gonna always play that way and that is less interesting like men's basketball for example like they change their rules every now and then too just in the interest of keeping the game interesting mm-hmm. in order to like change the because once coaches and teams discover okay this is how we just like get the most points and they do that obviously because that's how they win right and so you have to come up with creative ways of changing the game so that it doesn't become very one-sided or it doesn't become like okay the play is always going to be this yeah and i think that the for the interest of the game is the part that i'm i think that's up for debate 100 it's like we don't no one knows if the game would actually be better or worse under conditions where the goal is smaller or the field's smaller yeah right yeah but i I will say that in general that uh, if anything smaller pitches actually results in a more technical game as the chelsea women's coach mentioned technical in the sense like your technique has to be a lot more spot on because you have a lot less space and a less time because people can close you down and defend you a lot quicker uh and it just seems like uh, it would it would be an interesting sort of proposition because this is something that if you if you've watched women's soccer a lot or football a lot and Hope Solo mentions it in her tweet it's like the quality of women's goalkeeping has never been typically the this its strong suit right so why not negate some of that and make it less of a reason to to shit on women's football. Yeah, but I was also going to, I came into this kind of expecting knowing where you would be. And I was like, okay, I have to really make a try to like argue for Hope Solo's side or for like the other side. And I think one of the reasons that she's taking the stance she is, is because women's football has other cultural and societal issues that don't have to do with the technicalities, how the sport is played, right? Like there have been controversies about how much women's football players get paid in relation to men's football and how much money is given to women's leagues, right? So it's kind of, that becomes part of the context of this problem. I think maybe Hope Solo's concern or other women football players who are concerned about changing the rules are that 
in society, women's football is going to take a hit for doing that. Like it would, mm-hmm. it instead of elevating the gameplay and therefore increasing audience interest, it could do the opposite. It will make people think, oh, women's football isn't even of the same caliber as men's football. Mm. So it's not a serious sport. And so I think that's conflated within it. And it's not just about like, would the game technically be more interesting, but what would this do to the perception of the sport that we play and of the athletes? Yeah. I think it might actually serve to equalize the game a bit more in a sport like women's football, where not every country dedicates the same amount of resources, especially not in the same sense as like versus their men's programs. You could argue that if you equalize it a bit more, then there's more parity between, let's say, every team outside of the top 15 in the world. Yeah. Because if those are the ones that have the least amount of resources and potentially decreasing certain elements of it to make it more interesting could potentially change the game. But maybe their concern is changing the rules is like a shortcut versus putting more money into coaching and resources for those teams. Yeah. And but there's also they would want that to happen. I'm sure you would argue that you want that to happen for the game as well. Like not just a rule change, but that at the same time you do train better goalkeepers. It's not just about making the goal smaller. Yeah, there's definitely other infrastructure issues too like I mean, you go to any field anywhere in the world and it's standardized goals, period. Yeah. Right? It would take a very special sort of pitch yeah. setup, both from the lines perspective as well as a goal perspective to make this fit. That's a good concern as well, right? Like, if you limit the number of fields that women can play on in order to be like regulation standard, then maybe that would affect the type of teams that are created as well. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to say. Yeah, actually, if you look at the development of youth sports, like youth soccer and youth football, they actually do go and modify the size of the goals. So as you get bigger, the size of the goal changes. So that's right. an example of people sort of like playing within the confines of a certain certain size, like the field's smaller, the goal's smaller, etc. Well, I, th- I was going to say, I think Hope's comment about cheapening accomplishments comes from a place where she might feel like women's football players just haven't been recognized enough overall. Yeah. And it's not just about thinking, maybe she's not thinking about the long-term future of the game, but just feeling as though, you know, overall people who watch the sport don't give great women athletes enough credit for what they do. I'm just trying. I I don't know. I don't know her personally. I don't. She doesn't explain why she says these things, but I can imagine her feeling that way. Yeah, I think right now the sport that we see, like that is women's football. Like it definitely, if you're if you're like physically gifted, whether it's height or whatnot, then that is much more of an advantage because because of the the certain dimensions mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's but, more so across the average, yeah. Yes. No, I totally agree. A lot of what you've been saying makes sense in terms of like technically how the sport is played. But yeah, I would just, my conclusion on this is that the technicality of the game is very much within this co- global context of how women's football is perceived and how the money goes into it. So it's just not like a very straightforward equation. 
Anything else you want to say? If I was to offer an alternative sort of future, you know, like let's say in 10 years, they do go ahead and creating a league. Maybe it's like a, a breakaway. Maybe it's a breakaway league that just has its own sort of set of rules, smaller goals, smaller pitches, and it ends up being a better product. Mm-hmm. And that product itself actually creates its own fan base because the product is different. It's like, you know, the 11 aside game as we know it and that we were watching right now is no longer interesting. And this is way more fascinating. You mentioned housekeeping. I did. So first of all, if you feel like for whatever reason, you need to listen to us even more. (laughs) Sorry, that's not a good way to sell it. You should go listen to us more. Eugene and I appeared as guests on Water and Music, which is a podcast about music and tech in that intersection, hosted by Sherry Hu. You can listen to it at waterandmusic.transistor.fm. And we talked about. I haven't. Have you? No. That's why I was going to. Actually, it doesn't matter. I know it was. It's pretty fresh in my mind, but. Yeah, it's pretty like fresh in my mind. Listen. Uh, we t- do you want to just say what we talked about? We talked about a lot of things. And they were things that required me to actually prepare pretty, Which is a good pretty thing. thoroughly. I think it's because music itself is not really my wheelhouse. Like, I just have a an overarching view of a lot of things, which is yeah easy enough for you to insert, but then you also want to have some sort of value to bring to the conversation. So the entire episode kind of launched because Sherry read our essay, The Modern Creator's Paradigm, which meant Eugene and I had to go back and read that essay and kind of remember what we said. And I think we both on that, on the recording, come out and be like, oh, maybe we don't mean this anymore. So that's kind of interesting. Um, just rereading that and thinking about the things that we find that are still true and the things that maybe we would have wanted to edit. Go give that a listen. I think Eugene and I are really on the ball um, and we don't, you know, make as much well, shit up. Well, yourself on the back there. No, I was going to say we don't make as much shit up as we do on this podcast. Hey, I'm, I'm, running, I'm running the cuss meter right now and you're at three. Okay, okay. It's funny. This is the banter section. It's the part where you cut yeah, loose. Right. Okay, other housekeeping. So my friend Joan listened to our latest episode. She listened to 91, Ray Kawakubo and the rule of work. And then she WhatsApped me and she said, I disagree with both of you. And I'm genuinely surprised that you both took the stances that you did. I'm more surprised by Eugene because I assumed he would be on the side of work being something that you enjoy and find fulfillment in. But I think it's interesting that you both took a different stance when you both work in areas that you find fulfillment in. So I'm surprised that you would advise people against pursuing what you already have. She goes on, she says, I think I'm more in the camp that work should be something that you enjoy, but I live under the philosophy that pursuit of working in a realm where your interest lies is worth a bit of a risk, and I don't see it as irresponsible or necessarily dangerous for society. But I think the bigger narrative that I would emphasize when giving advice is that there is no wrong way to design a relationship with work. For some people, working the banking job and then pursuing something else in your free time is the way to go, and some people can't pull that off. For others, finding work that directly fulfills their purpose is the way to go. And there are just too many variables to fit a single narrative. I think I would generally agree with her three years ago, maybe. But I think the thing that has changed is just like running a creative business and knowing that the purity of the idea that you're pursuing 
sometimes it like there's such a small sort of uh not window of opportunity is not the right word but it everything needs to be so so right in terms of time and place for you to hit on it and to allow you to run with it versus how can you still achieve that goal and she's right like you can design different ways of getting there but ultimately you know there's there's the all right fuck this shit i'm gonna i'm gonna drop everything and go do it or there's a way where you can kind of dip your toes in and if you kind of find the value that allows you to actually push away what you're doing and dump and jump straight into it then i think that's that's another way of looking at it what i'm what i'm cautioning against is sometimes if you just go head first in and you don't have necessarily the the stability or foundation to allow yourself some sort of uh, i guess proper attempt at it then you fail a lot faster which is i mean i think there's a lot of ways of looking at it, but i think that's my perspective because ultimately if you're able to continue something that allows you to still do it that itself is probably more important because i'll think you know you jumping in head first and realizing you don't want to do it and then you have to start back over again or just re-enter i think that's more difficult than if you sort of dripping the experience i have nothing to add because i responded to her yeah. privately so wanted to whoa but you responded privately but you won't share it with everyone else i mean i i also completely man okay i also completely agree that yes there's multiple ways to design a relationship with work and whatever we advise is not going to fit everyone right and it's very hard to say that but i still stand by the fact that i think if i had to pick i think it's safer to say that you don't have to do do what you love as your day job and to earn money that way i just I, I'm obviously biased by like my own life and the people I know and my, my own experiences. But I just think that encouraging people to really go all in to make the work that they do something they really love is a lot of pressure. And I think that what that does to people is not necessarily healthy. Yeah. Actually, it's funny because earlier today, I received a comment about episode 91 as well, and I'll share it. It was sent privately to me by a friend of ours, Bezod. And he said, the point you made about labor and freedom versus suffering and passion is one I make to people starting out. What anything looks like from the outside is often different than the real job. You can love things and not want them to be your work. You can also love things and realize the best way to do them is work and have them live outside. The work and passion should be one and the same and can be a harmful myth. So I think that one part that's important within that passage is it's a point he makes to the people starting out. Mm-hmm. So I think the way you start something versus how you see it through is different. And my discussion or my point about dipping just a little bit in versus dipping or like jumping headfirst in is probably rooted more in that mm-hmm. and figuring out like how the business will work. Interestingly, I cut this out of Joan's message to me because it was a bit of an aside, but she also said... Passion is a strong word because not everyone has a passion. And I don't know if you remember this episode, but we had that big discussion about passion in the Ray Kawakubo section. And then 
Mm-hmm. Seems like Joan and Bezod both picked yeah. up on that and applied it to the second half. So I think that's pretty interesting. Anything else? No, that's it for me. Anything right. from you? That's everything from me. good place to cap things off for the day if you are interested in hearing more about making reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture you can visit us at makeit.com m-a-e-k-a-n.com you can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms if you like this podcast you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on itunes or sharing this podcast with a friend also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Charisse at Megan.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Megan.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. But the easiest way and most direct is to DM us on Instagram at Megan. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>